We live in a society that utterly rejects all notions of judgment. As a matter of fact, if you were to go and you were to talk to numerous people who know nothing of Jesus, care nothing for Jesus, the one quote of Jesus that all of them are most likely to know and most likely to use when talking to you is, judge not lest you be judged. And so I understand that this morning when we come and a, a preacher is going to talk about judgment and, we, and God's word speaks to judgment, that it is the, the mood of the day, it is the common uh, experience of the day to put our fingers in our ears and just wait for it all to go away so that we can go and eat Mexican food. But I say to you the same thing that Jesus says earlier in Matthew chapter 11. He who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears, let him hear. That you would not close up your ears, but instead you would open up your mind and open up your eyes to see the truth of God's word and the reality of God's coming judgment. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Admittedly, we have covered Matthew in a, a bit of a peculiar, uh, a peculiar arrangement. We started with verses 25 through 30 and on Easter Sunday, and then last Sunday we went back to verses 11 through 19. And this Sunday, we're going to cover 20 through 30, emphasizing especially verses 20 through 24. So if you have your copy of God's Word, stand with me as we read God's Word together. If you do not have your copy of God's Word, you can read it along with us on the screen. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. Up until this point, Jesus has been primarily ministering in the region of Galilee. And Jesus tells us that even more specifically than that, he has been primarily uh, ministering within three cities within the, the region of Galilee. Namely, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. That it is in these three cities that Jesus has seen fit to do the majority of of his, of, of his miracles. And this makes sense because this is where Jesus is living. Jesus is very likely living in Capernaum at the time in the, in the house of Peter. So much so that some, one gospel writer calls this the town of the Lord. 
Well, while, there, while he's been there, in Bethsaida, we know that Jesus has healed a blind man. We know that it was near Bethsaida that Jesus has fed over 5,000 people with a small sack lunch. It was in Capernaum that Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, healed the woman with the issue of blood, healed the centurion's lame servant. It was in Capernaum that Jesus cast out demons. It was near Capernaum that Jesus calmed the storm. Yes, Capernaum had witnessed what Jesus could do. Capernaum had witnessed the incredible power and authority of Jesus' teaching, and they had witnessed the incredible authority and power of Jesus' sovereignty. They had seen it all. They had had meals with Jesus. They had spent time with Jesus. They had, they had witnessed Jesus and sat under the teaching of Jesus. Matthew 9 says that as Jesus performed these miracles in Capernaum, and as Jesus taught in Capernaum, that his fame began to spread. That everywhere that these people would go, the crowds would only increase. They would get bigger and larger, and they would want to come and hear from this incredible miracle worker. And if you and I would have been there that day, if we would have been there back as Jesus roamed the streets of Capernaum, if we would have been there as he roamed the streets of Chorazin, if we would have been there as he roamed the streets of Bethsaida, we would have been impressed by the crowd that we saw. We would have been impressed by the crowds that we saw. The crowds were enthusiastic. The crowds would, would then go out after it was all over and they would tell other people, you've got to come and hear from this guy. You've got to see this guy. The crowd was so thick, thronging upon Jesus, that when, when uh, uh, four friends wanted to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus, they had to rip the roof off the house and lower him down to get around all of the crowd. Yes, the crowd was enthusiastic. The crowd liked Jesus. The crowd enjoyed being close to Jesus. The crowd spread the fame of Jesus. And Jesus denounces them denounces them. You see, the modern church has become way too enamored with crowds. We mistake God's blessing for large attendance. And we mistake God's judgment for lower attendance. But over and over and over, what we see in the ministry of Jesus is the crowd will form and the crowd will throng upon him and Jesus will denounce them and send them home. Let us be careful how we define success, brothers and sisters. Let us be careful how we define God's blessing. Let us be careful how we define God's judgment. And why is it that he denounced the crowds there? Matthew tells us plainly. He denounces the crowds because they would not repent. You see, the crowd in Capernaum, the crowd in the region of Galilee, was mesmerized by the miracles of Jesus, but they never embraced the message of Jesus. Jesus and John had the same message, you'll remember. Remember what we just read. Jesus has just brought to their mind, did you, why did you go out into the wilderness to hear from John? Did you go out into, in the wilderness to hear from John because John had easy believism type message? Did you, did you go out into the wilderness to hear from John because John was the kind of reed that would be waving in the grass? Or that John was an eloquent prince in soft clothing? 
No, you went out to hear from John because John spoke with an authority you've never heard before. You went out to hear from John because John told you to repent, that the kingdom of God was near. What was Jesus' message? Matthew told us all the way back in chapter 4. At the inauguration of Jesus' ministry, what does he begin preaching? The same thing that John had preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. And so Jesus has went out to do all of the miracles so that people might rightly identify him as the Messiah, might rightly identify him as the messianic figure that all of the Old Testament has been, has been pointing to and hear his message and heed it. But the people of Galilee, though mesmerized by the miracles of Jesus, though impressed by the fame of Jesus, never embraced, never applied, never loved the message of Jesus. They never repented. They never turned from their wickedness. They never turned from their sinfulness. They never turned from their, uh, their, their self-sufficient lifestyle and said, Jesus, I just want to follow you. Jesus, I depend on you for my forgiveness. Jesus, I depend on you for my salvation. Jesus, I'm going to follow after you. I'm going to abandon this way of life and pursue your way of life. You know, I think we see something there that's very pointed for us. That it is possible to, love, to like Jesus without ever really loving him. It's possible to like the message of the gospel and to like the forgiveness of the gospel and to like the idea of the gospel without ever actually having and applying the gospel to your life. It is possible to enjoy the thought of the gospel without ever enjoying the power of the gospel in your life. How do you know? How do you know if you've ever known the gospel that way? Have you ever repented? Have you ever repented? Have you ever turned away from your own self-sufficiency? Have you ever turned away from your own self-assuredness? Have you ever turned away from your ability to be good enough and to be smart enough and to be wise enough? Because you, the, Jesus is talking in verses 20 through 24 about the wise and understanding that he mentions in verse 25. The people that God hides himself from. Have you ever done that? Have you ever repented? Could it be that you like the idea of Jesus? You would even tell people that you have been saved by Jesus. You may even believe in Jesus. But you've never loved Jesus. You've never given your life to Jesus. You've never had the Spirit of God take residence in your life before. You've never had a passion for holiness. You've never detested your sinfulness. I ask you to evaluate your life this morning, brothers and sisters. I ask you to look at your heart, to search deeply through the truth. When Jesus says, he says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida. Jesus, by saying that, is calling into our minds the words of the prophets. 
Jesus, in fact, in this passage is speaking as the great prophet, the long-awaited prophet, the prophet that would be the final prophet, the incarnate word, the incarnate spoken word. And he is bringing into our remembrance, bringing especially into remembrance for the, the, the audience of Matthew, which would have been overwhelmingly Jewish, the, the words of the prophets. He is using here one of the most common and frequent formulas spoken by the prophets. It's used in the book of Isaiah 22 times alone. You'll find it in the book of Ezekiel. You'll find it in the book of Jeremiah. Pervasive, permeating all of the Old Testament. As the prophet of God would stand and speak against the people of God. Pleading with them to repent. Pronouncing the judgment of God that was certainly looming. The, the, the judgment of God that was assured. So we have Jesus doing the same thing. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. Wake up from your sin. The judgment of God is looming. The judgment of God is coming. See, by saying woe to you, Jesus is telling them that they are against God. Just process that for a second. What it would mean to be against God. God, to against the one who speaks everything into existence, ex nihilo, to be against the one that holds all of creation together, against the one who never paces and never wonders and is never confused, against him. Why, was, why were they against him? And why was God against them, in fact? It wasn't because of hostility. We, we, again, like we said, like, there, there were not torches and pitchforks trying to run Jesus out of town here. They were not hostile to Jesus' message. As a matter of fact, it seems that the majority of the people at the, until this point of Jesus' ministry have very much liked Jesus. Have been impressed with Jesus. They probably like it when he punks down the religious establishment every now and then. They probably like it when, when he says crazy things and they go home and they talk about it. They certainly like it when he performs miracles and does things that they've never seen before and, and says things that they've never thought about before. So what is it that has them against God? They are spreading his fame. Why is it that Jesus would be so strong with them? Jesus is denouncing them not because of their hostility, but because of their apathy. Let me say that one more time. Jesus is not denouncing them because of their hostility. Jesus is denouncing them because of their apathy. Jesus is denouncing them but not because they aren't impressed with his miracles. Jesus is denouncing them because they are indifferent to his message. That they have heard what he has to say. They have seen what he can do. They have been amazed by it, mesmerized by it, and they just leave thinking, oh, well that was a cool show. That was a lot of fun. That was quite neat. It is impossible for you to love Christ and at the, at the same time to be apathetic to Christ. Love for Christ and apathy toward Christ cannot coexist. How often in our community have you heard somebody say something like this? Well, I know I should blank, fill in the blank, but I just fill in the blank, right? I know I should go to church, 
but that's really my only day to sleep late. I know that I should live a godlier life. I know that I, I shouldn't have sex with outside of marriage. But, I mean, this is the 21st century, right? How many times have you heard somebody in our community say, I know I should blank, but I blank, and God will understand? What are they saying? They are saying, I know for me to bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus, my life has to be other than it is, but I'm not willing. I know that for me to be right with God, my life has to be different than it is, but being right with God is not that important to me. I know what Jesus says, I'm just indifferent to it. I know what the gospel means, I'm just apathetic toward it. This morning, if that's you, maybe you've said that. Maybe you do say that. Maybe you're thinking that. Maybe even now, as I'm talking about judgment, you find yourself wanting to plug your ears, open them up, because one day your indifference will make all the difference if you do not repent. One day your indifference will make all the difference if you do not repent. But I think maybe the great tragedy in all of this is, is how often is there apathy in the life of a Christian? How easily does apathy creep into our lives? How easily does indifference creep into our lives? We have found the risen Christ we have been delivered from our sins. We know what it is that our sins have been taken as far as the east is from the west. We know what it is that God has forgotten them. We know what it is that we have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, having already passed through the judgment. We already know all of that. And yet, for many of us, we remember our repentance and we remember our faithfulness and we remember a red-hot faith as though it is in the museum of our lives. We think back to past faithfulness. We think back to the past ways that God moved in our lives and we smile and we tell the story and we reminisce. But the truth of the matter is, is our lives now are more clearly defined by apathy and indifference than faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, if I'm honest with you, our apathy scares me sometimes. If I'm honest with you, sometimes our apathy scares me. It scares me sometimes to look over my shoulder and see so few Christians singing and praising God during the time of worship. I'm not getting on to anybody. That's not, what I'm, that's not my deal. You guys know that's not my deal. What I'm saying is, is there's a heart problem somewhere. There's a heart problem. We Christians are singing people. We are singing people. We have the new song of the gospel on our lips. We have been redeemed. We have been set free. We have met the resurrected, risen Christ that will reign over all the earth. And we will sit at his table forever. Can we not lift our voices to him? Can we not be more excited for him than we are the ball games that we watch? It scares me. How many come and hear the preached word week after week after week? 
but have still never served in any capacity the kingdom of God or the building up of the church of God. It scares me. It scares me how, how many of us can come and, and sit through the service and be anxious for it to be over so that we can move on about our day and get back to our lives and get back to our hobbies and get back to our Facebook accounts. Brothers and sisters, what does our apathy say about us? What does our apathy say about us? Do we treasure Christ or not? Is Christ our supreme love or not? Is Jesus what's most important to us or not? Jesus detests apathy. He detests it. I hope and I pray and I've prayed over the last couple of days of the whole of the week. That the Lord would show us our apathy. He would show us how real it is that so many of us look back on our past faithfulness and smile and remember as though it's not possible right now. Can I just tell you something? God's got something new for you. God's got something greater for you. There are parts of him you haven't seen yet. There are, are, are things about him you don't know yet. There are things that right now, that if you can learn them, it would be like a scales falling from your eyes, and it would part your hair, and you would just praise God. There are areas of service that may be different than what it was 20 years ago, or 10 years ago, or 5 years ago. But there are areas of places that you can serve using your gifts and your experiences that God can use to fan the flame in you. To kindle something in you. To kindle passion in you, and excitement in you, and energy in you. Not manufactured, not fake, but real, true, Christ-centered passion. Church, this morning, you look in your life, and you see the roots of apathy beginning to grow. Repent. Repent. Come back. Make new memories in the Lord. Come and, and worship the Lord anew today. Be restored today. Be rejuvenated today in the Lord. Repent. Because you and your apathy are posturing yourself in a way, even as a believer, that you are saying in some way, I am against God. Indifference is defiance to the gospel. Indifference is defiance to the gospel. As we unpack the passage, it only becomes more and more difficult, more and more surreal. Because you'll notice what he says to them. He looks at Chorazin, and he looks at Bethsaida, and he looks at Capernaum, and what does he say? He says, but I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to the heavens? No, you will be brought down to Hades. You will be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than it will be for you. You hear what he's saying? These are people that were likely mostly Jewish people who had high view of the law of God, who lived law-abiding lives, pious lives, moral people. 
and he looks at them and he brings into their remembrance these three cities that are, are known and famous throughout all of the Old Testament prophets. You read in, in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel about Tyre and Sidon, which would have been very close to Capernaum geographically. And he's bringing into their minds, and he's saying, do you not remember how the Lord denounced them? Do you not remember the judgment that they were to get? Do you not remember how the Lord put himself against them and brought destruction to them? You know because you see the remains of the city. Then he brings into mind Sodom. Sodom in the Bible is synonymous with wicked. It's proverbial for ungodliness. Sodom is the place that was so wicked that when the angels of the Lord went there, they wanted to rape them. And what does he say? He looks at Capernaum. He looks at the place in which he had done most of his miracles. He looked at the place in which his crowds were the biggest. He looked at the place um, where he himself had lived. And he says, you are worse than Sodom. If Sodom would have seen these miracles, if Sodom would have heard this message, even Sodom, the one who wanted to rape the angels of the Lord would have turned from their sin. And as such, their judgment will be lesser than your judgment. That Sodom will receive a lesser judgment than the moral, law-abiding Jewish citizens of Capernaum. See, what we learn here is that judgment, the judgment of God is proportional to the proximity of the gospel. The judgment of God is proportional to the proximity of the gospel. Here's what I mean by that. That the more the gospel is made obvious in a place, the more the gospel is made clear to a people, the easier the access they have to the gospel, the more severe and pronounced and grotesque their rejection is of the gospel. They were rejecting a, a picture of Christ that is more clear than the picture that Sodom rejected. They are rejecting a picture of Christ in which Christ himself has made himself known, had his gospel preached, performed his miracles, and they still say, nah, not a big deal. I wonder, though, if the American South might not be the modern-day Capernaum. Listen up to me, church. I wonder if the American South might not be modern-day Capernaum. Who on earth has more gospel researches, uh, resources? Who on earth has more gospel churches? Who on earth has more gospel witnesses? Who on earth has been heard of Christ more than we have? We live in the Bible Belt, for goodness sakes. And yet, if you look around... Pornography, just as pervasive. Adultery, sexual immorality, just as pervasive. Divorce, just as pervasive. We know the truth about God, yet we reject it. We have more Bible resources fading in the back windshields of our cars than entire countries have. We can access more gospel content in five minutes than many countries will have in 50 years. And yet we reject Christ through our apathy. And we reject Christ when we defy him in our indifference. Is it possible that if Jesus were here among us physically preaching this morning, 
that he might say, Woe to you, Aniston. Woe to you, Oxford. Woe to you, White Plains. Woe to you, Heflin. You've preached the gospel, but you've never loved it. You've read the Bible, but it's never been written on your hearts. You've preached, but you've never lived. You've been to church, but you've never been to the cross. Iron City, I ask you this morning, have you ever been to the cross? Have you ever been to the cross? The people that live on your street, have they ever been to the cross? The people that go to your high school, have they ever been to the cross? Have you been to the cross where you might make yourself a friend of God, humbling yourself as a child, as it says in verse 25? It is our responsibility as the church. It is our responsibility to go into our community and to prepare them for the day of the Lord. It is our responsibility to go and to prepare them, prepare our wives, men, to prepare our church pastors, to prepare our children, parents, to prepare our community, Christians, for the day of judgment that is coming. See, the day of judgment is at the center of everything that Jesus is saying here. That the day of judgment is coming, the day of judgment is certain. And on the day of judgment, judgments will be passed out. And if you, if you, in case you missed it, there are different degrees, there are different depths to hell. And at the very bottom are those that have seen and heard and liked the gospel yet rejected it. You see, there is nothing more inevitable than you one day standing eyeball to eyeball, face to face with the living God. There is nothing more inevitable in your life than to one day be bowed before the judgment seat of Christ. Imagine what that day will be like. Imagine being in a place in which the holiness is so potent that if you could die, you would, but you can't. Imagine being in a place in which you know that he has the record of your life and in it not one thing has been hidden. That every thought, every action, every misappropriated action, everything in your life is there. Not one of them is missing. Imagine standing before him, realizing that when this judge speaks, there are no appeals. There are no longer any other courses of action. That what he says is ultimate, utter, and final. Imagine trembling in his presence. Mom and dad... Your responsibility is not to have a good athlete. Your responsibility is to have your child ready for that moment. Husbands, listen to me. This is our responsibility to our wives. To prepare our wives to see the Lord. To be at the judgment seat of Christ. That's what it means to be the leader of a house. To be a spiritual leader. It has nothing to do with a domineering life. It has everything to do with preparing her to meet Jesus. And this is what we have for our community. See, Christians are people that live their whole life looking at the judgment seat of Christ. Christians are people who live their whole lives in the context of the judgment. And here's what I mean by that. On one hand, we hold and know 
that we must be urgent. We know that we must use this life to prepare us for that life. We must use this life to prepare us for that moment. And so we live and we go and we share the gospel in urgency and we live holiness in urgency and we learn about Christ in, whole, in, in urgency. We live our lives urgent knowing that one day we will stand before the Lord. One day that will be much sooner than any of us can even fathom. That once this mist is up that we will stand before him and give an account. So we live in urgency. And on the other side, we live in passion, in passion. We live as those who know that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we will not melt. We will not hear the pronouncement of judgment, but instead we will hear, well done my good and faithful servant, that we will get the judgment that Christ is due because he's already endured the judgment that we were due. We know that we will be pardoned from our sin and that that judgment too is final. And we will always be with God, enjoying God and knowing God and fellowshipping with God. And so we live looking at the judgment seat in urgency and we live at looking at the judgment seat with passion. See, there will be no apathy at the judgment seat. Not by Penn Jillette, not by Christopher Hitchens, not by Stephen Dawkins. Not by Bart Ehrman. Not by anyone. There will be no apathy. That when you stand before the Lord, whether your children knew him or not, they will not be indifferent in that moment. Whether your neighbor knew him or not, they will not be indifferent in that moment. In that moment, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The question in that moment is, is are they covered in the righteousness of Jesus or not? And so Christian, I beckon you, look at the judgment seat. Look at the judgment seat and let it send you to the nations. Look at the judgment seat and let it send you across the street. Look at the nations and let it burden you to disciple your children. Look at the judgment seat and let it compel you to lead your family and to lead your wife. Look to the judgment seat, but as you look, do not look without worshiping. Worship Christ. Worship the one that has defeated your judgment. Worship the one that has taken it upon himself to defeat the grave for you so that one day the Father will look down on you having pardoned the record of your sin and say, my son, my daughter, come to me. Be with me. Enjoy me. Know me forever. Maybe the weightiness of this sermon is almost more than you can bear. That's why I point you again to verses 28, 29, and 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This morning you feel burdened, you feel overwhelmed, overcome, by the weightiness of this sermon, I beckon you to come to Christ. To come to Christ and be yoked with him. To see how this burden can be made light in the gospel. That if you will repent and you will love him and you will pursue him and you will follow him, that he will be yoked to you in every moment, in every circumstance, in every day. 
Come to him. Come to him this morning. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father,